Heavy snowfall leads to 100 vehicle pileup on I-39. Central Illinois schools adjust mask policies. More on these stories, I'm Kelsey Watsonauer. I'm Sierra Henry. And this is Lee Enterprises Long Story Short. Good evening, everyone, and thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of Long Story Short, where we recap Central Illinois news from Lee Enterprises journalists. I hope everyone's staying safe and warm this week after another snowstorm. Our reporters have been hard at work the last few days putting together closure lists, keeping up with the public, safety announcements, and, of course, taking plenty of photos and videos of the snowfall. Thankfully, a lot of the snow we got two weeks ago had melted by the time the storm hit Central Illinois. We have plenty of content about the weather. So if you want to check in on the latest updates, or if you just want to watch a cool video, find our coverage at herald-review.com, panagraph.com, and jg-tc.com. This week, we have an exciting lineup of stories from the past week, including a few fun pieces from over the weekend that didn't quite make it into the podcast, but are still worth mentioning. That being said, Kelsey's going to kick us off with some state government news that affected our folks in Pontiac and Vandalia. Illinois is planning to downsize its prisons in Pontiac and Vandalia, citing a reduction in the state's prison population and the increasing cost of maintaining the older structures. An overview of the proposal showed that the IDOC will close the medium security unit of Pontiac Correctional Center, which currently houses 329 inmates and has a maximum capacity of 431, by March 16th. Later in the spring, the facility's east and west buildings, which house 329 inmates, will also close. The total capacity reduction of the prison will be reduced from 1,740 to 642. The Vandalia Correctional Center will see similar dramatic reductions, closing 10 buildings by the end of June. This will reduce the center's capacity from 1,001 to 410. For the full scoop and how this will affect the Illinois prison system, you can find Brendan Moore's report at herald-review.com, panagraph.com, and jg-tc.com. U.S. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg visited the Twin Cities last week, proclaiming the area and the state as being at, quote, the forefront of electric vehicle revolution. Buttigieg was joined by Governor J.B. Pritzker and Senators Tammy Duckworth and Dick Durbin on a tour at Heartland Community College's Advanced Training Academy, which is designed to prepare students in the manufacturing, diagnosis, service, and repair of electric vehicles. The program, which launched last year, offers students two-year associate's degrees and certificates that allow them to start or advance their career in the EV field. For more on Buttigieg's visit, find Brendan Moore's full report at paintagraph.com, herald-review.com, and jg-tc.com. Democrat State Senator L.G. Sims of Chicago has sponsored a bill to amend the Missing Person Identification Act to require coroners and medical examiners with custody of human remains that are not identified within 72 hours of discovery to notify the FBI for assistance. The bill is being driven by the death of Illinois State University graduate student Jelani Day. The goal is to address underreported and unsolved missing persons cases, especially those involving people of color. The proposal comes nearly six months after Day, a 25-year-old Danville native and ISU student, was reported missing in late August. His body was discovered a week and a half later near the south bank of the Illinois River, east of the Illinois Route 251 bridge in Peru, but it wasn't identified by the LaSalle County coroner for nearly three weeks. 
For more on the bill and what it entails, or to read more on our coverage of the investigation into Jelani's death, be sure to find Brendan Moore's report at pandagraph.com, herald-review.com, and jg-tc.com. Okay, now let's move into some local city government. Bloomington Ward 7 Alderwoman Molly Ward this week announced that she has submitted an initiative to establish a special committee that would be tasked with investigating the root of a recent uptick in gun violence within the city. Her announcement came just days after the second homicide of the year in which a 20-year-old normal man was killed in the early morning shooting. The McLean County Coroner's Office identified the victim as Dylan Meserol. Specifics for the committee are not completed, but Ward said she hopes it would work to identify the scope of the gun violence problem and draft future recommendations for action. For more on the committee or to read about the full Bloomington City Council meeting coverage, find my report at paintergraph.com. The Matching City Council has awarded a $604,750 contract to Plotcher Construction for rehabilitating the city's wastewater treatment plants clarifier. The unit is currently out of service and it's essential for it to be rebuilt, the public's work director said during the meeting. Mattoon also approved a $35,000 proposal for a risk and resilience assessment as well as an emergency response plan for the wastewater treatment plant, which will be conducted by Crawford Murphy and Tilly, an engineering design firm out of Springfield. For more on the wastewater treatment plant or to read about the full city council meeting, you can find Mattoon's unique story at jg-tc.com. And now let's go into to some business news. Uh, now let's move into some business news. A second former State Farm employee has filed a lawsuit against the insurance company alleging discrimination and retaliation. The woman, Ashashi Mandayan, is being represented by prominent civil rights attorney Ben Crump and attorneys with Chicago-based Hart, McLaughlin, and Eldridge. The first lawsuit was filed by former State Farm employee and normal resident Dr. Carla Campbell-Jackson, who is also alleging discrimination and retaliation. Campbell-Jackson is also being represented by Crump in her lawsuit, which was filed in Michigan because that is where she worked at the time of her employment. In a statement provided to the Panagraph, State Farm said that the allegations do not reflect the Bloomington-based company's culture. Mantayan was terminated after 19 years with State Farm because, quote, she complained about State Farm's rampant culture of racism and discrimination, which permeated throughout her time at State Farm, creating a hostile work environment, according to the lawsuit, which was filed January 21st in McLean County Circuit Court. For more details or to learn about a class action lawsuit alleging discrimination and retaliation that was filed against State Farm in November, find my full report at panagraph.com. The Howard G. Buffett Foundation is committing to a $9 million donation to the Decatur Public Schools Foundation to build an agricultural education center. The center is designed to house high school ag programs, including making the national FFA organization programming available to Decatur Public School students enrolled in Duane O. Andreas Ag Academy. The new center will be on US 51 near Red Tail Run and will include classrooms, labs, offices, and an arena to allow other area schools' FFA programs to hold events. The plans, um, the plans are for first and second year students to remain at the high schools for their ag classes, while junior and seniors will spend blocks of time in the morning or the afternoon at the new center after its completion. For more details, you can find Donette Beckett's full story at herald-review.com. And in some quick health news, Path Crisis Center in Bloomington is rolling out a new suicide hotline across Illinois. The call center currently handles calls for information and referrals at 211, but will soon begin offering suicide prevention call center services in 81 counties of Illinois under the new 988 number. The current National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 1-800-273-8255, or those last four numbers also spell TALK. 
and that number will transition to the three-digit 988 number in July as part of the National Suicide Hotline Designation Act, signed into federal law in October 2020. The Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration is also developing a system of crisis teams that will respond on-site when needed to reduce behavioral health calls to 911, reduce law enforcement involvement in crisis calls, and reduce unnecessary hospitalization, Path said in a statement this week. For more about the center and all the jobs that are going to be coming to Bloomington related to the center, you can find my full story at pantograph.com. Alrighty, now let's move into some education news. Uh, Sierra, what did we find out in Decatur this week? Yeah, um... Folks, just bear with me because this is kind of a complicated story and I kept a lot of uh, Valerie Wells's original reporting in it, but it's coming out of Decatur. This week, the Herald and Review obtained, through the Freedom of Information Act, a series of emails exchanged by Decatur public school officials and the firm that they hired to search for the district's new superintendent that were expressing concerns over the qualifications of one of the candidates. During the search for the new superintendent, there was an email that was dated on January 5th, uh, which was the same day of the online community forum in which two finalists would be named. School board members started to question the search firm about one of the candidates' qualifications. Specific questions were raised over Michael Gall's lack of educational experience and certification. The hiring firm responded to the school board members that they did not anticipate having any problems with Gall obtaining a certification considering that he had been an administrator at other school districts. According to the Decatur District's timeline of the search process, the firm informed the school district that Gall could not obtain certification from the state. District officials said that Gall withdrew his name from consideration. And just so everyone is clear, to serve as school superintendent in Illinois, the Illinois State Board of Education requires a master's degree or higher, completion of superintendent training coursework, an internship or equivalent experience, completion of coursework in teaching exceptional children reading methods, content area reading, and teaching English language learners, licensure exams, two years of experience working as a principal, director of special education, or chief school business official or administrative position while holding a valid administrator's license, passing the Illinois superintendent test. Gal holds two master's degrees, one in engineering from the United States Air Force Academy, the other in national security policy studies from National War College. He has no classroom or teaching experience. His last two jobs, his last two jobs as listed in an email from the hiring firm were president of sales and the Deputy Chancellor of District Columbia Public Schools in Washington, DC. In the end, the board voted six to one on February 8th to hire district employee Rochelle Clark, who was not among the initial applicants, to be the next superintendent. For the full scoop, you can find Valerie Wells' story at herald-review.com. Three central Illinois school districts have been named in a lawsuit filed by parents opposing COVID-19 rules and protocols. The move comes as a legislative panel voted to suspend the latest version of coronavirus mitigations for public schools. Parents from McLean County Unit 5, Bloomington District 87, and Pontiac Grade School District 429, represented by William Gerber of Fairbury, filed the complaint in Sangamon County. The plaintiffs include 38 families from Unit 5, 4 families from District 87, and 21 families from Pontiac 429. The complaint asks that the rule, the complaint asks that the court rule that masks and inclusion from school are unlawful quarantine orders since they were not given by the health department. For more on the lawsuit, you can find my and Connor Woods' full reports at panograph.com. 
Continuing with the masking dilemma, Unit 5 and Bloomington District 87 both made masks optional for its schools. The decision was made in response to a vote Tuesday by the Legislative Joint Committee on Administrative Rules. The group moved to suspend the latest Illinois Department of Public Health emergency rules for schools as well. Some Illinois school districts have already begun changing their mask rules following a temporary restraining order by Sangamon County Circuit Judge Raylan Grischow on February 4th, which involved parents and teachers from around 170 school districts, with the named districts being prevented from enforcing the COVID-19 mitigation mandates. Back to our other story about the lawsuit filed against Unit 5 in District 87. Despite these changes, attorney William Gerber said that he and the parents he is representing from the two districts and Pontiac will continue to pursue the lawsuit that they filed on Wednesday. An update on this issue also came in on the early hours of Friday when a three-judge appellate court ruled the governor's appeal moot because after the JCAR decision, the very rules it was appealing were no longer in effect. To read more about how parents and teachers reacted, as well as updates from the appellate, find reporting from Connor Wood and Kelsey Watsnauer at Pantograph.com, as well as from Brendan Moore, which is also on Herald-Review and JG-TC.com. Okay, Kelsey's going to take us into public safety. Um, we had like we had some public safety announcements due to weather, and she's going to tell us about what happened on Interstate 39 on Thursday. That was a lot of education. Apologies uh, for that. A section of Interstate 39 was closed following a 100-car pileup near El Paso on Thursday afternoon amid inclement weather conditions, including severely gusting winds and heavy, heavy snow. In Bloomington Normal, we had about 9.5 inches at the end of the day. Several hundred yards of the southbound lanes on I-39 were closed, and an Illinois State Police squad car was involved in the wreck as well. Police were were still responding by the time of our report. I think they have opened it. State police, as well as emergency responders from the El Paso area, worked on this wreck for I'm going to say about 24 hours um, since it was such a major collision. It was the road was shut down for several hours. I believe by early afternoon on Friday, um, all lanes were open and all the people who were involved in the crashes uh, had been moved to warming centers and their vehicles had been cleared. But if you want the latest, you can find the details from Brendan Dennison's story at Panagraph.com. Another news, a Bloomington woman who was arrested during an investigation into a missing infant is now facing charges of child endangerment relating to her two other children. 29-year-old Kimberly A. Burton was jailed on a $10,000 bond and was ordered to have no contact with each of her four children. She was arrested Tuesday on the charges while she was in McLean County Jail on a retail theft charge. She has not been charged in the disappearance of her seven-month-old child. Police are still searching for the infant, and anyone with information is asked to contact Sergeant Detective Jared Beerbaum at 309-434-2807 or jbeerbaum at cdblm.org. Okay, Kelsey's going to give us a little preview to a story that she's been working very hard on on Black History Month in community news. So, Kelsey, take it away. Okay. Here in Bloomington Normal, we have the Bloomington Normal Black History Project, so this is not entirely tied to the fact that it's February, but I thought it was a good opportunity to talk about this. Um, Um, This project that has been in the works for decades, like the 60s and 70s, I believe, is when it first started, and it was officially established in the early 80s. Um, It's in an effort to pull together stories from Black Americans living here in Bloomington Normal. Over the decades, they've collected a lot of artifacts, including like um, things about businesses, letters, 
posters, lots of little things. Um, and they've been working with the McLean County Museum, Museum of History to house those things. And they also, this project also was uh, behind the resurgence of the Juneteenth celebrations here in Bloomington. They came back in, I believe, 2019 for the first time since the early 2000s. That was my first Juneteenth here. I was there. It was uh, definitely a fun time. A lot of people showed out and really showed a lot of support for it. And in the following two years, the Juneteenth celebration had to go virtual because of the pandemic. And they really embraced the educational side of it as well as still um, having a celebration for that day. My favorite part of the Bloomington Oral Black History Project, though, is the oral histories that they collect. Um, They've been conducting interviews with important figures in Bloomington Normal History for decades. Um, people like Merlin Kennedy, who was the first black Santa here that landed himself in Jet, Jet Magazine because of there was because the city tried to make him stop being the black Santa in the parade. There was Henry Gay, who fought against um, redlining on the west side, as well as, as well as segregation regarding the Miller Park Lake um, for decades, for probably hundreds of years, the Miller Park Lake um, Black folks weren't allowed to swim there, um, so he fought against that. And there's doctors Janine and Charles Morris, who were professors at ISU, and black students weren't allowed to live in the dorms, and they had a hard time uh, finding housing off campus, so they helped uh, students secure housing. Um, again, finding, fighting against discriminatory, ha- discriminatory housing practices. Um, so yeah, it's been like it's been very interesting talking to people who've been. Uh, who have conducted these interviews, who know some of these folks who are like really history makers in this community. And uh, as well as looking back even farther to, we know the names of folks who were born into slavery and moved here to find a new life once they were free. So it really goes back all the way um, as far as American history goes. And uh, this was just a good opportunity to talk about this piece of American history because I, if you haven't heard it, you should have uh, Black History is American History. So um, yeah, you can find my story coming out this weekend at panograph.com. Cool. Thank you so much for the comprehensive uh, talk about the um the project i'm actually really interested in um hearing some of the oral history interviews i think oral history is like really cool and i'm really glad that they were able to talk with such prominent figures in um black history and bloomington normal like that's fantastic so that's going to do it for us today folks as always thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode um if you're enjoying this podcast and our reporting Check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. While you're at it, head on over to panograph.com, herald-review.com, and jg-tc.com to look up subscription information and consider supporting hashtag local journalism. And check out the Panograph on TikTok. (laughs) Yeah!